what's planning to be the last and final week of this. Now we will see where we get today because I do have a lot of stuff I want to get through and I don't want to blow through it too quickly because it's important stuff. Um, so this may extend one more, but I'm hoping to get done today. We've been on this 10 weeks, 10 weeks talking about the armor of God, which seems like an eternity. But I think what we've done is we've gone through it very diligently. I think we've been very um, intentional about understanding each part of the armor. And I think it's crucial, especially with the day and age that we live in. And that's why I've been so meticulous talking about spiritual warfare, because there's so many misconceptions about spiritual warfare, what it is, and more importantly, we need to understand what it is not. And so there are things, there's bigger aspects in the spiritual warfare side than what we, we talked about it on an individual basis, how you and I are engaged in spiritual warfare on an individual basis with the enemy attacking us. There's also these overshadowing things that go upon in nations, but that all starts with a number of individuals who are being attacked and don't realize it and playing in to the devil's hand. That's why it's important that we understand where that battle is. The more you study this, the more you understand it, the more you'll recognize it when you're engaged in conversation with people. You'll begin to see where they are. You'll begin to see where they stand on different things, their understanding of Scripture. You'll, under, you'll start to see exactly how the enemy is using their mind as a playground. You'll, you'll pick up on this stuff, and then it gives you a better way to understand. The Holy Spirit will open up to you how I can help them. And so it's important that we do this. And so in Ephesians chapter 6, let's read it one final time. You should have this memorized by now. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age and against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. We have gone through this meticulously. We look at this at the very beginning. He says, finally, Paul is closing out his letter to the Ephesian church, the church of Ephesus. He is saying, this is the last thing that I want you to understand. And he says, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. He didn't say form committees and figure out how you're going to get all of this done. He didn't say put a group together that can create a strategy to overcome the works of the enemy. He says be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. And what's he telling us? We depend solely upon God. We're just simply being faithful. It's God that does the work. He tells us well, we've got to put on the whole armor. That implies several things. One is you have to put it on. And two is that don't just put on a piece of it. Put the whole thing on. And honestly, if you can put it on, that also means that you can take it off. And really, don't ever take it off. Put it on, leave it on. Stay always in God's Word every single day. Don't just study it in a devotional under, you know, thing. How a personal application, uh, if you know what I mean. You know, it's, not like, it's like reading John 3, 16, saying, what does this say to me? What, what is, you know, take it, study it, look at the context of it. Understand what was going on at the time it was going on. And you'll get a broader picture of the overall scope of the, and the power that's in this work because these were real people dealing with real issues. And a lot of times we get stuck in this rut where we just extract all of that and we put ourselves in this little spiritual bubble and say, this is talking to me. 
There is personal application in every part of Scripture, but we got to start at the very beginning. And so why does he tell us to put on the armor of God? So we, armor of God. It's so that we can stand against the wiles of the devil. What are the wiles? Those are his methods. That comes from the Greek word methodos. It's the pathway that he takes. He's coming in, and it's over and over. It says that he always takes the same road. There's really one thing that he uses. It's a battle in our mind. He says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And that means against one another. We don't wrestle with each other. We're wrestling against the ideologies that the enemy has set out. The, the worldview that the enemy has convinced unbelievers of. And even some believers. I, I, for the life of me, will never understand how somebody who professes faith in Jesus Christ can support any person that is okay with abortion in any capacity. But what's happened is that the enemy has taken that method and he snuck in. He snuck under the radar. He's gotten in there and they don't even realize what's going on. We don't wrestle against one another. We wrestle against the principalities, the powers, against the rulers of the darkness of, the, of this age and against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. These are different legions of angels, different rankings, if you will, that are set up and they're very methodical and they're very disciplined. Why? They've been doing this a long time. They're good at what they do. They're better at what they do than you are at what you do. Which is why that we are strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Only God can overcome that. We don't, we're not smart enough. We shouldn't try. We just depend on God and we be faithful to His Word. We take up the whole armor that we'll be able to stand the evil day. And when we do all to stand, these are military type terms that are used in the Greek. It's standing. It's that unwavering. It's that unmoving. I'm not moved by what I see. I'm not moved by what I feel. I'm only moved by what the Word of God says. And if God said it, that's good enough for me. It's, it's taking each piece of this. Standing therefore, having girded your waist with truth. We talked about this, the loin belt of truth and how crucial truth is to every aspect of our life. And how crucial that loin belt, this insignificant looking belt, is to the entire armor because every piece of that armor locks in to truth. The breastplate of righteousness, this innate thing that we wear, covers both sides, protects our vital organs, and it is the righteousness of God. The shotting your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That gospel takes you. It moves you. It's what changed you. Is somebody presented the gospel in a way that made you fully persuaded that God was who He said He was and that you are who He said you were. And because of that, you needed a Savior. That shotting your feet, these shoes were not sandal. These things were wicked. They were unmovable. They had two to three inch spikes at the bottom of them. They were used as a weapon, but more importantly, they were used to keep you immovable. You can't be moved with this. Taking the shield of faith, which was able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. That shield is in front of you. It says above all. It means it's out in front. Not more important, but it's out in front of you. It was many layers of leather, and it would be soaked in water. And when these fiery darts would come in, it would quench them. I mean, all of this, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, all of these things we've talked about week in and week out. We need to be diligent every single week to do this. Every single day when we get up, having this in the back of our head, God, I am prepared for this. And this requires commitment from you. Because we didn't just spend 10 weeks studying about it so that you can have an understanding of it and never do anything with it. The whole point of this is that now we are engaged and we have the proper teaching and understanding of how we use this stuff and put it into practice. And so the last verse, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. We've talked about this, and I'll just recap this last piece real quick, is this dealing with prayer. 
And this is, is showing the, the spears that, that the Roman army would use. They, someone with an Eastern mindset, especially somebody of that time period, would have picked up on that. We don't notice that as quickly because it doesn't say the spear or the lance of uh, prayer or anything like that. But knowing the army and how they were and the individual soldiers and the weapons they carried, you can put all of this together. And what he's saying is there's many kind of prayer. There's all different kinds of prayer. And not one prayer is more important than the other. They all need to be used at different points. They all have a purpose, and they get used. At that. And that's what we've been talking about the last two weeks, which we're going to finish with today. We've talked about the prayer of consecration, the prayer of authority, um, all of these different things we've talked about. But now we're going to finally we're going to bring it down with the last few. And the first one we're going to talk about today is the prayer of thanksgiving, which is very appropriate given the time of year that we happen to be in. The prayer of thanksgiving. Now, Last week I told you that anytime we pray, we pray with thanksgiving. We always do. We're always thankful in advance to what God is going to do for us. And that is the ultimate sign of faith. Because you're giving uh, credence to something that maybe hasn't manifested in your life yet. And I've shown you some different examples uh, of that. You know, the, the, and they would build these altars that would be thanking God prior to, God, if you do this, then I'll do this. And this is how we'll do it. And they're giving thankfulness. Thankfulness needs to be a part of every prayer that we do. We're thanking God. But prayer, the prayer specifically of thanksgiving is a little bit more in-depth than that. This is the fourth most common form of prayer that is in the New Testament. And the Greek word that's used, it's used 15 times. The Greek word is eucharista. Eucharista. I think I have that up on the screen. It's used 15 times. Throughout the New Testament. Now, what I want you to understand are these words. I'm just giving you the New Testament examples of that. But these prayers go way back before this. Okay, They are all throughout the Old Testament. I'll show you a little bit of that today. But I haven't done that so far. So this Eucharist is made up of two words. The first word is E-U, you, I assume. It means good or well, a good disposition or feeling about something. Good or well, a good disposition or feeling about something. The second one, the charista, comes from the word charis, or charis, however you say that, which is a word that means grace. It's something that you've likely heard before. Some of these uh, get thrown around a lot. So what this is telling us is this wonderful feeling and good sentiments that freely flow up out of the heart into, in response to something. In response to something that's going on. This, this exuberance that's inside of our heart. Now Paul uses these a lot in his epistles. When he's joyfully thanking God or, or for somebody else, for someone or some group of individuals. So let's look at a couple of these. Ephesians 1 and verse 15. It says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Now I want to pause there for one minute because there's a couple of things. Why was Paul thankful? He had heard of their conversion, Right? But it's that word saints there that I want you to look at. And this is kind of a rabbit trail, if you will. But it's important that we understand this. Most of the time in the New Testament, when the word saints is translated, it should be better translated holy ones. And the reason for that is when we think of saints, most of us think of believers. And that is true. There are some denominations think of saints, think of saints that we pray to. Okay, That is not true. But holy ones is not just humans in every case. Now, it very likely is. But it also refi refers to God's divine counsel, God's angels. 
Okay? Because we are one with them. We are created beings just as they were, with a purpose. We are part of God's holy ones. And so when you see that in the New Testament, you just need to have that in the back of your head, and that'll make things start to make a little bit more sense in some capacity. Okay? That's a rabbit trail. That's free information. No problem. You're welcome. Another verse that w- where you see this with Paul, Colossians chapter 1. In verse 3, it says, We give thanks to God and to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. Same thing. Same thing with the Ephesus church. He's saying, We are thankful to God and we're praying for you always. Why? Because they, ever since they heard of their faith, it excited Paul. Why? This was his work. This is what God put him on earth to do. I mean, it excites them to see the things that are going on. 1 Thessalonians 1. Verses 2 and 3 says, We give thanks to God always for you, all making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. What are they doing? We're giving thanks to God again for these people. And he's spelling it out. It's this over-exuberance that he feels. One more. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 through 18 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, this is powerful because this is the end of the letter that he is writing to the Thessalonians. And so he's telling them that you need to rejoice always. Why do they need to rejoice always? Because they're facing persecution. Things are not going the way that they would hope, the way that we would think. If we took American Christianity and transplanted it through time and put it there, we'd all be wiped out because we're not ready to handle it. These guys face persecution. Our persecution is somebody doesn't like us. That's a lot different. But he's telling them, rejoice always. And then the next part, pray without ceasing. That means never stop. Always be in prayer. What does verse 18 tell anything? Praying always with all prayer and supplication. Then he tells them, pray without ceasing. Paul's consistent. It's telling us one that we never stop. And in everything that we give thanks. And that everything does not mean in everything that good that happens to you, give thanks to God. That means even when things are bad, you give thanks to God. It amazes me, and you see this on Facebook all the time, that the only time someone is thankful to God for something is when they got what they wanted. You ever notice that? Or am I alone? It's like suddenly, God is so good because He provided me a new car. Well, was God good before you got your new car? Of course he was. You know, God is so good because I got my promotion at work. Well, was he good before that? Absolutely. But what happens when something good happens in our life, we're all suddenly reminded, right? We're suddenly reminded of the goodness of God. And the thing is, is it should be in our mind all the time because God is good. It's in everything we give thanks to him. And so, as I said before, we use this prayer of thanksgiving in every aspect of our lives. It's on every occasion in every way possible is the bottom line of this. We do this. It's a spirit of thanksgiving that should dominate our life. It should be a dominant role in how we act. It's got to be. Because this thanksgiving, it overcomes all the nonsense that goes on. When you're thankful in the face of trouble... It's this this allegiance to God, this ultimate sign of faith that He is greater than anything you face. And it suddenly changes your outlook because you begin to look at things differently. You begin to look at the situation through the lens in which God looks at the situation, which is no big deal, right? 
There's nothing. I mean, this is God. He created heaven and earth. And we're down here, oh God, what am I going to do? And he's like, are you kidding me? That's all you got? This is nothing, right? We're constantly being thankful. and We have to let it be dominant in our lives. Don't walk around just like you're in the mud all the time. And we know people like this. And it's like, man, we got to be thankful to God in the good and the bad. We've got a, 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 you guys maybe remember a a few months ago, a friend of ours, it was two months ago actually, who lost a baby. They had a placental breach and and the baby didn't make it. That was, you know, it was ready to be born and all of that. And she was incredibly strong at the funeral, which blew my mind because I wouldn't have been, but she was. But now it's starting to set in. You know, two months later, starting to say, so we're going to get with them next week and spend a couple of days with them and just pray with them and, and just be there for them. But what's going to happen, and this is part of intercession, which we'll talk to in a minute, is that sometimes somebody comes alongside them whose faith is maybe a little stronger in this situation, who's thankful to God and everything and can just help you hold your hand and walk you through a difficult situation. Is God good even though that baby died? Yes, He is. Absolutely, He's good. It's not the circumstances that determine how good God is. God is good. All the thing that changes is how we respond to the circumstances. That's it. So a couple other examples. I'll just throw these out here. 2 Corinthians 4.15 and 9 verses 11 through 12 is another example. Philippians 4.6 is one. Colossians 2.7, and I could give you, you know, 10 of these things. But just so you know, there's lots of these in the New Testament. This thankfulness, this thanksgiving is all throughout. That specifically mentioned that type of prayer, but thanksgiving is in every type of prayer. The next one that we'll talk about is the prayer of supplication. And this is a confusing word because we don't use this word today. The prayer of supplication. It's used five times in the New Testament. It comes from the Greek word in Texas, E-N-T-E-X-I-S. But the root of this word is from a word I can't pronounce. It's intugchano, E-N-T-U-D-G-C-H-A-N-O. Did I put that up there? Oh, I did. Good for me. Look at that. I'm not spelling nothing else for you guys. But the N means enter into, and I've got that up there. And then the tugchano part is to happen upon. So it's to fall into a situation or to happen into a circumstance with someone else. This word in Texas is, is, in its various forms, are usually translated as the word intercession in the New Testament. That's usually how it's translated, so you may not pick up on this. But it's not intercession in the way that you and I think, as in somebody intervening for another. It carries this idea of a person who comes to God and with a very simple and a very childlike faith and they freely enjoy fellowship in the presence of the Lord. One expositor said in some of the research I was doing the studying for this, said that this is basically prayer in its most individual and simplest form. I mean, this is, this is simple. This isn't request. This isn't I need. This is falling into the presence of God. This is just being in the presence of God. And this is very neglected in the prayer life of individuals. This is the one that I'm weakest at. Just being honest with you. And the reason for that is because when I get up in the morning, I've got a list of 25 things in my head that have to get done. And so one of those is not this prayer. I pray. I pray every day. 
And I thank God, and I'm, and I'm praying as I'm studying, I'm praying, Lord, show me this and open this up and reveal this and whatever you have for them this week, open it up to me and reveal it and whatever you want to do, Lord, it's all yours. You know, and I pray for you guys as individuals, and I pray for the church as a whole, and I pray for the city and how we can be more effective in reaching the community. And I do all of these things and pray, but do I ever just pray and spend time with the Lord? I won't say never, but it is rarely. Why? Because it's just how I'm driven, which means one thing. I have to discipline myself to do this, and I don't do a good job at it. You have to take time and set it apart. So the reason I'm going to hammer on this one so much is because I'm hammering on myself at the same time. And you even talked about this this morning, Janet, is that we have got to spend time in the presence of the Lord. He wants to spend time. You were talking about that this morning. When your grandson was coming down, she said at Bible study this morning that, that she's walking around and God said, are you going to ignore me? Basically, I'm not saying it exactly, but are you going to ignore me while your grandson's here? And she's like, no, of course not. But it's a valid question. Why? Because that grandson of hers will draw all your attention and then some. That boy has got more energy than any kid I've ever met in my life. He's awesome. But it's just one of those things. Is it going to draw your attention away? You know, what is it? And so... It's this, this, this presence of God, this intercessory thing where we are jumping in into the presence of God. So, but what it means is this in Texas is to supplicate with the Lord. And this word, it was used a lot in this classical Greek literature. And what it would do is it would depict a, a relationship, a love relationship between two lovers is really how this broke down. It was two individuals who had happened upon each other. And it would have found or discovered one another, and now they're sharing their lives together. A husband and wife relationship, if you will. Something like this. It denotes this, this intimate, this wonderful form of prayer is where we learn to come before God in this childlike faith. And we freely express ourselves and our desires and unreservedly come to God and just enjoy His presence. I mean, that's, that's what we're just coming into His presence. And so the word supplicate, because we don't use it today, we don't really know what it means, but the definition of the word is to ask for something earnestly or humbly. And in the usage in Scripture, now that is just like Webster's Dictionary, okay? But in the usage in Scripture, what are we asking for? I just want to be with you. I, I just want more of you. I just want to be around you. And you see this used a lot in the Psalms. And let's look at a few of them. Psalms chapter 4 and verse 1. It says, Hear me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. These, this type of prayer, this, this calling out to God, just reaching out to Him. Psalm 5.8 Lead me, O Lord, in Your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make Your way straight before my face. Psalm 6.4, return, O Lord, deliver me. O save me from your mercy's sake. What do they do? They're, they're, they're calling out to God for something, but it's that, that intimate relationship with Him that they're depending on. It's because they're in right standing with God that they're, they're crying out to Him. Psalm 7.1, it's, it's, O Lord, my God, in You I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me. What do they do? They're just crying out to God. And it's in this intimate form that's being done. Now, in English, we don't necessarily pick up on all of that, how the intimacy that's there. But you've got to, one, you've got to know your Bible and you've got to know the Psalms. But what do they do? They're crying out to God. This would be like a wife crying out for her husband to come and rescue her. You know, what's he going to do? Everything possible. That's why Jesus came and rescued us. We are the bride. He came to rescue his bride. 
He came out, I mean, he, he, he left everything behind. He came down to this earth as a man to face everything that we did because he loved us. He's like, I can't leave them like this. I, have, I will, I will do this. You know, I mean, it's just, it's this, this intimacy with God. It's important that we do this. Another one is the prayer of intercession. The prayer of intercession. Now, this is one that we are familiar with. This is one who has a standing or favor with one who is in authority and uses that standing to make an appeal for a person who does not have that authority. Let me read that again. One who has a standing or favor with one who is in authority and uses that standing to make an appeal for a person who does not have it. We're we're intervening, if you will. An intercessor is nothing more than a go-between. right? They're a mediator. They do this for people who don't have a strong relationship with God. That's what an intercessor does. They'll intervene in prayer for an individual who maybe their faith isn't where it needs to be or something. They'll come up alongside of them. Or perhaps with people who have no relationship with God, even more importantly. And so you see this used throughout Scripture, but the first time you see it used is in Genesis 18 with Abraham. And so Genesis 18, starting in verse 20, It says, And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. What is Abraham doing? He's saying, wait a minute, God. What, I mean, are you going to just take them all out at the same time? And if you, as you read further, he narrows it down. Because God's determined to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He's determined. Why? Because of their wickedness. You know, they reach, in the Old Testament, you always see these cities reach a pinnacle, at which point judgment finally comes. And Abraham doesn't want to see this. Now, this should show you a couple of things. One, Abraham was in right standing with God. We know that from Scripture. We know that he was. But the influence that he had on God. We miss out on some of those things that when we go to God and we say things like that, he's saying, God, would you really do this? I mean, aren't you one that's, that's bigger than this and stuff like that? And breaks it down. He said, gets all the way down to 10. He shouldn't have stopped there. Well, maybe he should have. We wouldn't talk about it as much if he had. But, but I mean, it's just like he, you see this intercession going on. And he tells Abraham exactly what he wants to do. He's like, I want to destroy them. And so Abraham jumps in. And here's the thing. If God always acted like God, we couldn't relate to him. In other words, in, in a scenario like this, because let's face it, judgment's coming on this world and likely coming on this country very quickly, right? Because we've turned our backs on God. But Abraham jumped in there and said, God, would you? Would you, would you allow me to intervene? Would you allow me to intercede on their behalf? Would you, would you God? And it's the same thing that we as believers do for this. Name. God, would you 
would you, would you, would you? Because if God was just up there with a the hammer, like everybody says, you know, all these unbelievers, oh, he's just up there with a the hammer, we couldn't relate to him. Why? Because we've got to have that personal relationship, that, that give and take, that understanding of who he is and what he does and the, the rights that we have when we come before him. Basically, in this whole passage, Abraham just draws very near to God, and that's very important that you catch that. It's in this inner scene, he draws very near to God. He walks up to him. Because God's in physical form here. He walks up to him and says, hey, would you? It begins to, to talk to him. And God will permit a righteous person to pray on behalf of, of one or many who are wicked to stay off this judgment that's coming. You see that in other aspects of the Old Testament. But it's always for a season because judgment will come. Because unless there's repentance, right? You see it with Jonah. He said, go to Nineveh. Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He ends up in Nineveh. Why didn't he want to go to Nineveh? They were their enemies. He didn't want to have anything to do with them. But he goes in there and says, judgment is coming. What is God doing? I don't want to destroy these people, but I have to be righteous and I have to be faithful to what I say I will do. And so he sends them in there and warns them and they repent. That's one of the few examples you see of repentance, but it does happen. So we see these judgments coming. Now, in our individual lives, let's back this up a little, because what we call the judgment of God or the things like that, we think of calamity and stuff like that. But individuals face different circumstances at different times. The problem is, is separating something that is an attack from the enemy, which why we have every right to intercede as believers, to come into place and, and demand that that thing be remedied, fixed, whatever you will. But sometimes a person's stupidity finally catches up with them. And... It's not the enemy. The, the enemy probably looked as like, well, they're stupid on their own. They don't need my help. You know? I mean, have you ever seen somebody who lives on more than they make and has every form of debt possible to the extent that they can't see the light of day crying out to God for a miracle? And yet all throughout Scripture, it tells us how we steward our money, how we handle it, what we do. You know, be smart. The borrower is slave to the lender. There's a reason that's in there, which is where they're at. They're crying out for God for a miracle. Now, that doesn't mean it can't happen, but it's like, finally, the cows have come home. The chickens have roosted. I don't know. I can't think of all those they'll say. But you know what I'm saying. I mean, it's just, again, there are things that we can intercede for, and there are things that we can't intercede for. It would be no difference if, if somebody comes into my office and says, I just want to let you know that I just murdered five people. Would you pray to God that I don't go to jail? I don't think I can help you. I can pray to God that you can be forgiven. I can lead you to the Lord now and we can take care of your eternal problems, but I can't help you right now. You're going to jail. You know, but that's what we do. And we always want God to pull us out of the mess that we created for ourselves. Now, some things He can and will. But there are laws that he established and things that we do. So when it finally catches up with us, that's a problem. There's a difference in that. Another place you see intercession taking place is in Ezekiel 22. Starting in verse 23. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son, son of man, say to her, You are the land that is not cleansed or rained on in the day of indignation. Now this is referring, her is Israel, just so you know. The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured people. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many wind widows in her midst. Her priests have violated my law and profaned my holy things. They have not distinguished between the holy and unholy, nor have they made known the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have hidden their eyes from my Sabbaths, which is very important because that is the sign of the old covenant with Israel. Honor the Sabbath. It was crucial. 
So this is a big deal. So that I am profaned among them. Her princes are in her midst are like wolves tearing to prey, to shed blood, to destroy people, and to get dishonest gain. Her prophets plastered them with untempered mortar, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God, when the Lord had not spoken. The people of the land have used oppressions, committed robbery, and mistreated the poor and needy, and they wrongfully oppressed the stranger. Now the stranger, you need to understand this, this is also in Leviticus 19, especially what's going on with all these refugees. The stranger here is a converted person outside of Israel who has now come to Israel. They've rebuked their other gods. They have now joined the Israelite. They keep the, the Torah, the law, and all of that. When you see that, it says strangers are sojourners. That is what that's talking about. So in their eyes, they are Israelites. And that is how they should be treated. That doesn't mean that's how they treated them, but that's according to the law, that's how they're supposed to be treated. Is that it'd be no different than somebody coming to America the right way, doing everything to become an American citizen. As far as our Constitution is concerned, you are 100% American, therefore you have the rights that come with our Constitution. Same thing here. Sorry, sidetrack. Okay, verse 30. So I sought for a man among them, who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath, and I have recompensed their deeds of their own heads, says the Lord God. Verse 30 and 31 is really what I wanted you to see. But if I just read that, you have no idea why it's so bad in Israel. Well, now you know. I mean, they have done everything wrong that they could have done. They have just gone off the deep end. And even then, God is looking for somebody to stand in the gap. And no one is there. And here's the bottom line. is You don't have to wait for a burden to be an in-between for somebody, for, for our country, for, for any person. Just do it. It's not like you have to have this burden to pray for an individual to pray for an individual because when you pray for somebody in one form or another you're interceding when you lay hands on somebody who's sick to pray for them you're interceding you're 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 becoming the the touch point from God first Timothy 2 starting in verse 1 and it talks about this therefore I exert, exhort you first of all that supplication prayers intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men for kings and all who are in authority that we may, we may lead quiet and peaceable life and all godliness and reverence for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth so now a couple of things first of all the word exhort so you understand what this means, is to say something over and over again. So sometimes when you come in here, there's a teaching that I'm doing that is more of an exhortation. In other words, you all know this, but I'm saying it to you time and time again because it's important and we need to, we, we got to own that, you know. You'll never hear me downgrade the importance of preaching the gospel to every creature and being a witness in the streets and in, a, in every area of life. You'll never hear me. Why? Because that is exactly what Jesus told us to do. And it's not like me telling you that. You're like, oh, I never realized you were talking to me. No, we all know that we are that person. We are all supposed to. But I'm exhorting you over and over again. It's basically a reminder. Hey, don't forget. You need to do this. A revelation is something that you would have never heard before. And so there's a difference in this. A revelation would be something that perhaps 
It's just even as I'm preparing every week, usually something jumps out on Scripture. It's like, oh, I never saw that before. You know, the Holy Spirit's opening it up to me in a way that I've never looked at. Because when you study Scripture, you get that. When you just read Scripture, you don't necessarily get that. You can't. But when you study it, you begin to pick up on things that you don't necessarily always see. But what's he telling us to do here? He's talking about giving thanks to be made for all men. And what he said, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Why is this important? Now, we don't have a king, but we have a president. And it says all who are authority. And we are to pray for our president no matter what you think of the man. And you are to pray for our, our leaders, our Congress, and, and, and all of this stuff, that they will make wise decisions, no matter what your opinion is on them. Why? Why is that important to do? Why is it important for you to intercede for them? That we may lead quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. You see, when the leaders are corrupt, the people grumble. They're not happy. What's happening in our country today? Our religious freedom is being trampled upon every day because we have elected leaders who do not fear God. And because of that, they have no respect for the First Amendment. They don't care. It is what it is. Yeah, they're changing that we have freedom of, from freedom of religion to freedom of worship. Because freedom of worship would mean that we have a right to come together as a church and worship in this building. But we can't take those deeply held beliefs outside of these four walls and have them impact the rest of our lives. That's freedom of religion. And that's what they're saying. Well, yeah, you can go and you can worship any way you want a church. I don't have to have freedom of worship. I have deeply held convictions that impact every area of my life. And what happens when we're not praying, when we don't show up to vote, when we're not praying for elections, which one's coming up here pretty quick. And it's important that we're prepared for this, that we're praying that God put the right leader in place. One mistake the church has made every time things get rough is that we assume this is just a sign of the end time and we get lethargic. Well, God said this is going to happen, so I'll just stay home. That is absolutely wrong. We are to live our lives as if tomorrow is guaranteed. And we live our lives that way and we, we worship God that way. But there are times that have happened. You look back at World War II. In World War II, you could not travel around the world safely. Now, they didn't have the technology to do it that we have today, but it was not safe. The whole roar world was in upheaval. It was not safe to travel by boat, which is how they got across the sea. Because some German U-boat would come up and bomb you. I mean, they'd take you out. And so it wasn't safe to do this. And so missionary work came to a complete standstill. I mean, it was almost non-existent. And on top of that, money was tight all over the world. Why? Because everybody was putting millions of dollars into a war. The whole world was in a complete uproar. Do we want to see that again? No. We want to live quiet and peaceful lives in, in reverence to God. And therefore, we have to elect leaders that do that. Therefore, we have to pray for those leaders. Therefore, we are interceding between God and them, that they would open up, that they would see it, that they would see things God's way. And we have seen that time and time again. I'll, I'll give you one quick story, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to wrap this up here. I'm going to go through the last part. But one story, if you've ever heard of Chip Brim, Chip Brim uh, is Billy Brim's son, okay? And so Chip was a baseball coach, and he was a good baseball coach. And he kept winning championships and championships. And, of course, anytime you're successful, people get jealous around you. And they were accusing him of recruiting players. Saying, no, you can't, you've been recruiting and all of that. And so they go to a, I don't know if it's an actual court, but whatever the league is or something like that. 
And uh, it was just a big deal. This is Texas baseball. This is a huge deal, okay? And so they, uh, he, he'd done nothing wrong, and he knew he'd done nothing wrong. And people were coming up on the stand and lying, saying, yep, I know he called this person. I know he called that person, all of that. And so basically, it looks bleak for him. Nothing's going to happen. There's a bunch of people praying for him because he didn't do anything wrong. And the judge is about to, to award the verdict, essentially. And then whoever was making the accusation said one more thing and pushed it too far. I mean, they were just about to say their verdict. And the person interrupted and said, well, let me tell you one more thing. And it was something so off the wall that it made them think. And like, wait a minute. That doesn't make any sense. That's not even possible. And so the whole thing ends up going in his favor. Why? He was the righteous, had a bunch of people praying and intervening. Do we care about Texas baseball? Of course we don't. But the principle is there. I mean, it's the same thing. People are inter intervening for him on his behalf between him and God and what was going on. And here they were praying that the right thing would be done. And, of course, it was, even when it didn't look possible. So that's one type of intercession. And that's the one that we know very, very well. It's the one that we hear about. It's when you say intercession, that's what you think. Somebody intervening on behalf of another. But there is another type of intercession that we often overlook. It's actually talked about only one time in the New Testament. And it's in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 26 says, Likewise the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. This is not used in connection with believers. In other words, that I'm interceding for some, I'm praying for somebody. This is used in connection with the Holy Spirit. So who was doing the work of intercession here? It's the Holy Spirit. This word here, do I have it up on the screen? I do. That one. I tried sounding that one out, I promise. This is an old word for intercession, but what it means is to fall in on someone's behalf. To fall in on someone else's behalf. This is what you and I would call a rescue. That's the idea behind it, is the rescue. It speaks of those times when the Holy Spirit supernaturally joins in our circumstances and begins working a plan that will ultimately get us out of whatever's going on. When we're at a loss and we don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit jumps in to our helplessness and He joins with us in prayer. And the whole purpose of it is so that we can be rescued or we can be renewed or we can be delivered. But who experiences this? The person who finally recognizes their own weaknesses and begins to open up their hearts and souls to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because this is not something that the Holy Spirit can do without you allowing it. And this takes somebody who's willing to yield to the Holy Spirit, to the leading of the Holy Spirit, which is crucial for the next part we're going to talk about. Because in verse 18 of, Gen uh, of Ephesians 6, it says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication of the saints. That's the New King James Version. I actually like how it says it in the ESV, the English Standard Version, or the Extra Saved Version, however you want to say it. It says, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer, 
is supplication. You see, you can break this down in a couple of different ways. Even in the way I read because I like the New King James, that we pray always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. So you can break this down in a couple of different ways. That we pray always with all prayer. That we pray always with all supplication. And we pray always with the Spirit. Now, if you're here for the Holy Spirit series that I did, the next question should be easily answerable for you. But it doesn't tell us what is praying in the Spirit. It doesn't say what that is. That means there's got to be an answer there because He just told us to do it. And He wouldn't tell us to do something that we wouldn't be able to figure out what that something is. In Jude, chapter, or Jude verse 20, not chapter 20, there is no chapter. It says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faiths, praying in the Holy Spirit. Where we see the same thing again. What is He telling us to do? First of all, it says we build ourselves up, but we're praying in the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 14, 14. This is Paul talking. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Now when you look at the whole letter of 1 Corinthians, the first thing he says that you should be on meat, but I'm having to give you spiritual milk because you're still babes. You should be on this. So that tells us something. This entire letter is written to new believers who are not mature in their faith. So that tells us something important. This isn't a hierarchy thing where you finally arrive and now you get to do this. You get to finally pray in the Spirit. This is saying that it is at the very beginning, at your most intimate and most infant, I should say, state with God. But I pray in a tongue, my spirit's praying, my understanding is unfruitful. We're praying in the Spirit. We're building ourselves up. How does the Holy Spirit intervene for us? We've humbled ourselves to a level of saying, I don't know, and I, I depend on the Spirit. When one prays in an unknown tongue, their spirit prays. It's not their mind. All other prayer involves your mind. Every one of them. There's not one that doesn't, in one way or another, involve your mind. Why? Because we have to say the words. And whether you're physically thinking of the words or not, subconsciously you are. And you're like, well, how is that possible? Well, I can tell you exactly. When I'm singing on, on these songs and stuff, I'm usually, the words that I happen to be singing at that moment, I'm thinking of the next first line so I don't screw that one up. Sometimes it's the next song. Um, sometimes it's, <laughs> I wonder where we're going for lunch. No, I'm just kidding. But, but I mean, it's like, don't ask me how it happens. It just happens, you know. I can't explain it. It's weird. But here it is, is that our mind prays in every other kind of prayer, but Paul tells us that we are to pray always in the Spirit. It's important, or Paul wouldn't have said it. It's part of our armor, or Paul wouldn't have said it. It's another, it's another weapon that we have. And yet the church today downgrades it and says, oh, no, 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 that, that went away a long time ago. Or that's only for you weird people, you kooky people. A good friend of mine who really doesn't know his Bible well, but he knows what he's been told about his Bible well, who argues this with me all the time. And he says, well, you tongue talkers, you bunch of weirdos. And he says, you know, that's what the Bible says. I said, and then I throw out a verse like this. I said, what do you say about that? He's like, I'm going to have to get back to you on that one. I said, I bet you get back. He's yet to get back to me on it. So that was a year ago. But, but again, what are we saying? We're talking about praying in tongues. And, and again, I don't have time to build all of that case again. If, if you missed that, it's online. You can go listen to it. But the bottom line is this, is that it is there and it's, it's a crucial, it's important. It's a part of our prayer life. What do we do when we don't know how to pray? 
We yield to the Holy Spirit. There are times, and you've recently experienced some of this, um, where, where the Lord just, you just get up and you have a burden and you don't know what it is and you don't know what to do. That's a good time to pray. That's a very good time to pray. Why? Because you don't know what's going on. Holy Spirit knows. You know, we, we've got to yield. Here's the bottom line, church, is when we walk out of here, we should say, God, I want everything that you have for me. Every promise that you've made, everything that you said that you've made available in your word, and everything that helps me build up my most holy faith so that I can walk in all diligence and righteousness in this world and be an example to who you are. I want it all. And if that is the case, then praying in the Spirit is no different. But yet we don't, we don't heed to it. We don't do it. We just, we just ignore I don't need that. It wouldn't be there if you didn't need it. That's the bottom line. So as, as we finish out this series that we've gone on forever, what do I want you guys to know, especially at these last two, is that the battlefield is always in your mind. It's always. You do battle for yourself. When thoughts come against you, when things come against you that doesn't seem fair, doesn't seem, it should trigger something. And immediately that sword of the Spirit should separate your soul from your spirit and say, now wait a minute. Is this my idea or is this God's idea? Is this something from the enemy or does this line up with Scripture? Every single time. It seems like a lot of work. It gets easier the more you do it. The more you know Scripture, the quicker it is to, to weed all of that nonsense out. And you walk out of there, we put on the whole armor of God because we are in a battle. The enemy is out there trying to take us down. He's trying to take out the church and take out believers and discredit them. We've got to stand. If every individual stands up and does exactly what we've just talked about, imagine what the church would be like. I mean, imagine, imagine today is that if you walked out of here and today said, I'm going to be intentional. This week, I'm going to lead one person to Christ. I'm going to talk about it everywhere I go. I'm going to find a way to turn every conversation into something about God. I'm going to find a way. And you lead one person. And they get so on fire about it. They're so excited about things of God. Because finally, they see that they are weak. They see that they are lost in sin. And they see that they need a Savior. That they begin to tell one person, what would this city look like in a year? I mean, think about that. Do you know how doable that is? How very doable that is? The problem is, is we think evangelism just happens, almost like it's an accident. It's not. Our example is Paul. Paul had a mission, and he went out and fulfilled that mission. He didn't just say, I'm going to wake up, and wherever the wind blows me, I'm going to hope somebody asks me about Jesus today. He didn't have his Christian t-shirts on. He wasn't listening to Christian music for people to ask him questions. He went out and talked to them. What would happen if we engaged in war against the enemy instead of sitting back waiting to be attacked? If we got out of defensive mode and went into offensive mode and said, we are going to change this city, what would happen? Can you imagine? Can you imagine what one year would look like? I mean, you talk about revival. It would be incredible. How cool would it be is that every time somebody got sick that they called one of us so will you come pray for them? How cool would it be is when somebody called for an ambulance, they called one of you too. 
How cool would that be? Why? Because they know. They know that you walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. How cool would that be? And all it takes is people willing to do it. So the question you've got to ask yourself, am I willing? And don't just shake your head yes at me. Ask yourself seriously this question. Am I willing? Am I willing to sacrifice whatever it takes to do this? And be honest. Because if you're not, find out why. And change it.